I call it a certainty engine. There's a kind of machine-like quality to the the widespread reductivism and instrumentalism and pragmatism, however you want to put it, that our age is characterized by. Essentially, poetry and art, music, break open the world again for us that had gotten closed by our false certainties. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Well, hi, friends. Welcome to the Betwixt podcast. I'm Deb Gregory. In part one of my interview with artist Bruce Herman, we heard about the house fire in which Bruce lost 25 years of artwork. He described it as a catastrophe, a good catastrophe that somehow brought freedom amidst great loss. Helen Schulman wrote in Toward Psychologies of Liberation, In liminal space, one meets the unconscious edge of one's former narratives. At this point, the possibility to try out new narratives, to reframe one's story, becomes critical. She goes on to describe how if we engage the shift— We can move from fear and defensiveness to curiosity, creativity, and celebration. So in part two of my interview with Bruce, I wanted to learn more about his work as an artist. What are the new possibilities and narratives that he's been exploring? How have curiosity and creativity shifted in his artwork? And I'm particularly interested in his latest series called Ordinary Saints, which explores that fraught space between icon and portrait a space he's described as entering into no man's land between the sacred traditions on one hand and the traditions of portraiture and of art song and poetry. So listen now as Bruce and I continue this rich conversation. One of the concepts that I really love to explore is paradox. Mm -hmm. And when I think of paradox, I think of like not just conflicting ideas, but through that something new can actually come a, a new thought, a new perspective, right? But we don't leave a lot of space for paradox in our lives, and we uh, kind of reject it. And I think that's something that is really difficult, especially for Christians. But I see art as being something that's really helpful for helping us enter into that kind of space. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, uh, you know, if our era could be characterized by anything, it's often characterized by pragmatism and by a reductive mentality. It goes with the scientific Mm. posture. And I I use that word scientific carefully. I mean, in other words, it's not scientific. In fact, true scientists, great scientists, are not the kind of people who reduce the world to numbers only. They, They may be mathematicians, but if they're great mathematicians, they're also full of wonder like Einstein. If you read any of the the little philosophical statements by Einstein, they're just loaded with ambiguity and paradox and mystery and reverence. You know, he's not a know-it-all. In fact, one of the things I love, I don't know if you've ever heard this last interview that um, Einstein gave, or one of the last anyway, someone visited him at Princeton and said, Dr. Einstein, one of her questions was, Dr. Einstein, what is it like to have been one of the greatest minds of the 20th century? And Einstein looked a bit bemused, and he said, well, 
I've entertained a few ideas in my life. In other words, he didn't even get the question. <laughs> the humility of that man was such that he, he recognized he was just entertaining those ideas. He didn't own them. Mm. He, was a, he was a host. He was showing hospitality, as it were, to great ideas that generated so much knowledge now. But that's a truly great mind. And, but I'm afraid that our, our era is characterized by a kind of a narrow pragmatism that thinks it's not practical to engage in paradox because paradox, it, it disables the, the certainty motor engine, you know, the engine of certainty. Because if you're, if you're reaching out, as I think great minds like Einstein and uh, Jan Sebastian Bach and you know, great poets like Eliot, if you're reaching out to this world of wonders in which we live, with true sensitivity, and you're really paying attention, you cannot miss the paradoxical nature of our perception of the world and its, its fluidity, the fact that you have no certainties. You know, wisdom is, from my point of view, an embrace of the ambiguities. The realization that you can't hold this thing in your hand. It's like in the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the light shined in the darkness. The darkness has not often is translated comprehended it or overwhelmed it or overcome it. The word there, the Greek word, is the same as the word for comprehend or to get a handle on. Essentially what's being said there is the word of God is not something you can handle. You can't get a handle on it because it's not an it, it's a person. You have to reduce a person to an object in order to comprehend them. You can't comprehend persons. You can only know them and love them. Mm, that's so good. The way you're talking about how wonder just kind of, I'm still sticking with that phrase that you said, how wonder disables that certitude, right? Yeah. That engine. Mm -hmm. That sounds awfully threatening to a lot of Christians, doesn't it? <laughs> so yeah. can, you, can you just talk about your life and your experience as a man who is both a Christian in, you know, the contemporary culture of, of Christianity here in North America, and also as an artist, how do you, within your own words, when I, when I invited you to the podcast, you said, I swim in liminality, <laughs> but how do you swim within the tension of these two worlds that you live in? Well, thanks. That's a, that's a wonderful and, and rich question. I'll try to respond. Um, before I do that, I want to find something for you that I'd like to read, but sure. it's going to take me a second. Oh, yeah, uh, go for it. It's a poem by my friend and, and collaborator, Malcolm Geit. Yeah, here it goes. He's a British poet, very accomplished poet, and someone I'm very honored to be working with right now on a, on a major project. The reason I want to read it is because it, it really summarizes what we were just talking about, and also it helps launch what I wanted to say to you in response to your question. So okay. the title of the poem is rather long. I'm being told my poetry was found in a broken photocopier. That literally happened. His, you know, someone in an office came and complained to him that it, his poetry was jamming her machine, that the Xerox machine. <laughs> that is so uh, great. But, uh, but then it sort of spurred him into this whole thing about, you know, this is what poetry does. It jams the certainty machine. It jams up that part of us that wants to control everything. Yes, I'm going to read this to you. Okay. Actually, I'm going to let Malcolm read it to you. Yeah. My poetry is jamming your machine. 
It broke the photocopier, I'm to blame With pictures copied from a world unseen My poem is in the works, I'm on the scene We free my verse and I confess my shame My poetry is jamming your machine Though you berate me with what might have been Yes, stop to read a poem just the same And pictures copied from a world unseen Subvert the icons on your mental screen And open windows with a whispered name My poetry is jamming your machine <laughs> For chosen words can change the things they mean And set the once familiar world aflame Copied from a world unseen The mental props give way on which you lean The world you see will never be the same My poetry is jamming your machine With pictures copied from a world unseen So, why did I want to read that? Well, you know, you got the refrain there it's the idea that Christians, maybe in particular, based on what you were saying, Christians in particular may be addicted to certainty. And there's a machine-like quality. That's why I call it a certainty engine. Hmm. There's a kind of machine-like quality to the, the widespread reductivism and instrumentalism and pragmatism, however you want to put it, that our age is characterized by. We want a handle on everything. We want to be able to control our world. That's what comprehension is about. Hmm. It's about control of putting your hands on something. It literally has the same etymological roots as handling. Wow. Comprehend. Essentially, poetry and art, music, break open the world again for us that had gotten closed by our false certainties. Wow. And, but wow, that's something to sit with. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's rich. You asked me, how do I balance my life as a man, husband, father, etc.? How do I balance that with my art making and my faith as a Christian? Well, um, it's impossible. <laughs> I mean, I, that's the truth. It's impossible to balance all these things because all of them are all all consuming. Uh, my relationship with my wife is all consuming. My relationship with my children is all consuming with my grandchildren, with God. Poets have always talked about the muse from which we get the word music. You know, they call her the angry muse or the hungry muse because art will take anything you give it. It'll eat your life up. And I know people whose lives have been eaten up by their art mm. and they've burned through marriages and friendships with their obsession. You know, early on in our marriage, thankfully, I, I married a very strong and sensible and down-to-earth person who as I like to say, has a, a BS meter on a hair trigger. Um, <laughs> she basically confronted me at one point uh, and said, look, buddy, you got to make this into a job. It's not your religion, meaning my art career. Wow. Um, and I knew she was right. So I started doing that. I mean, that was my early 20s. We got married. She was 19 and I was 20. We had a kid right away. Then I went to college. You know, it just shows you my life was a little bit crazy. And she, she's put up with me all these years. We've been married now 45 years. Thanks be to God. No thanks to me. <laughs> thanks be to um, God. Yeah. Turning it into a job helped. And, you know, balance is a tough thing to achieve. I actually think God keeps us off balance. I think balance is overrated. I think God 
if you know God or you come to know God or you enter into a real conscious relationship with God, God keeps you off balance. You know, when Nicodemus came to Jesus in that famous moment recorded in the Gospel of John, hmm. but he came to him by night, he basically approaches Jesus as a great rabbi and says, fill me in, what am I supposed to do? How, what do I have to do in order to attain to righteousness? And Jesus throws him a curveball and says, you have to be born anew, you have to be born again, or you can't even see the kingdom of God, much less participate in it. And you know, Nicodemus, being probably a fairly proud and accomplished man, comes back with a kind of wisecrack and says, so I have to climb into my mother's womb again? And Jesus wags his finger at him. I can see the whole thing. It says, you're a teacher of the Torah, and I have to explain this to you? Then he goes on to say to Nicodemus, those who are born of the Spirit are like the wind. You neither see where it originates, you don't see where it's going, you just see this kind of tumultuous effects of the wind. I think God throws us off balance. I think he wants us off balance so that we don't get smug and we don't start thinking we actually know something or, that, or worse, start playing God, which is what people love to do. And that's what I think the original sin was in the Garden of Eden. It clearly was, had nothing to do with sex. Mm -hmm. uh, it was Eve trying to play God by going against the one thing, the one rule. They didn't have 10 commandments, they had one. And it was, a, you know, God was trying to protect them. Don't eat that fruit, because in the day that you eat of it, you will, in the Hebrew is, you will die, die. You'll experience a double death. It usually gets translated, you will surely die, but that's, that, that's misleading. God is trying to protect them from spiritual death. They didn't die physically. You know, and I think playing God is the great temptation for all of us, especially artists. So I, you know, mm -hmm. I think God keeps us off balance on purpose. And I've been off balance for my entire life as a result, because I'm, I'm trying to stay in the presence of God. It's, it's impossible when you're trying to juggle all these different roles in your life. And a lot of, a lot of us have to, especially nowadays when people are working two and three jobs to, just to make ends meet and also making art. Crazy, huh? Yeah. Well, that sounds like a lot of a lot of artists. I mean, that's the reality, right? Exactly, exactly. But I think implicit in your question, or maybe even explicit, was so. What does this have to do with Christian faith, and and is it is it somehow this challenging, liminal, paradoxical, off balance, uncertain realm of art? Is that antithetical to Christian faith? And I guess what I would, the reason I got off in that long digression there is because I, I say no. In fact. Jesus' challenge to Nicodemus about you know, being born again and being like a child in order to see the kingdom of God, you can't see the way that God's kingdom unfolds if you're too busy with your certitudes hmm. because, because you're not listening. Uh, because God is like the wind. You know, he's coming and going totally unbidden and unpredictably. And he has, I'm not saying that the heart of God is unpredictable. I think his heart is the only steadfast thing and truth and reality is the love of God. Yeah. Everything else is in flux. Anyway, I mean, that's kind of a long-winded way, but I, I think if I had to summarize again, I'd just say, being a Christian and being an artist is one of the most natural things in the world. In fact, I think all Christians should make art, some kind of art. And by art, I mean almost anything. You can make a loaf of bread and it can be art, but you should be making something if you're a Christian. If you're not making something, you're not following Jesus because he's a maker and he made us 
as makers. We are made in his image as, as makers. Uh, and I, the reason I say that is because I think if you're making something, you're humbled. Anybody who tries to make something, if you try to make it well, it humbles you. It does. <laughs> right? Yes. I you're mean, trying to do this podcast well, and <laughs> I that having crazy artists like me going off on these long tangents is really making it tough for you. No, that, no, that's not what's tough. <laughs> All the technical aspects, you know, it, it is hard. When I was younger, I used to love to create things, but whenever when someone would call it art, I would just scoff at that. Like, yep. no, it's just a study. <laughs> yeah, I'm just exactly. studying it. <laughs> I'm, with you, I'm with you. But the process, I think, is a gift to us as humans, as image bearers of God. Can I ask you, how has your art changed over the years? And if you could talk a little bit about uh, some of the work that you're producing now. What are the liminal waters that you're swimming in now? Oh, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about that. Yeah. So how have things changed, you're asking me, since the house fire? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so I just want to remind you uh, what I said when we started talking about the fire. It is not the big deal okay. of my life. Yeah. It's not some major turning point for me, although it was a turning point. Uh, it just wasn't, it wasn't among what I would call the three or four most important turning points in my life. It did have an effect on my studio work. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly I found that out from other people who were looking at my work and told me what they saw. Okay. It certainly wasn't a conscious thing. The thing that I noticed, as I said, it was pointed out by other people, is that the color choices I was making changed after the fire. Before the fire, my palette, if you want to call it that, the dominant color chords in my work were in the blues and greens and and grays and black and so forth. More kind of somber range of colors. After the fire, they suddenly shifted into reds and oranges and ochre yellows and ochre red, I don't know if you know that color, mm-hmm. earth colors, and um, what would probably be called more joyful kind of colors. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the imagery, however, in my work post-fire. Uh, most of the paintings I did for the first five or six years after the fire were about ruins, and, and, and not just architectural ruins, but human ruins. Mm-hmm. So I did a whole series called The Body Broken, Yes. which was, was kind of a meditation on the martyrs of the early church, but they weren't historical illustrations of those martyrs, although I did entitle one of the paintings Perpetua and Felicitas, which is one of those great, great stories from the early church. If you don't know it, look it up. It's a great story mm-hmm. because Perpetua was an incredibly brave woman and much yeah. braver than her, her brother or her father or any, anyone else in her family. Yeah, it was, it was about ruins. But the color choices were joyful and full of freedom, as you put it. So yeah, that's one change after the fire. Um, I think you asking me this has started me thinking about it. So now after we get off the phone, I'm probably going to have to think about it a lot more. So thanks a lot, Deb. Sure. Uh, (laughs) Let me, I'm thinking out loud here. I think probably the fire, because I took it personally, not in a negative sense, but I took it personally in a positive sense, like God was communicating something to me about my own tendency to to say that everything belongs to him but sometimes act like it doesn't mm-hmm. so i i had a spiritual shift that took place after the fire and again i'm thinking out loud here i think probably in terms of my art what happened was i started questioning some of the basis of my making i mean what was i doing this for 
And I think what I discovered was, it was several years after the fire, I'd say probably two or three years after the fire, I, I found myself one morning praying, and praying a prayer that I don't advise anyone to pray unless you're ready for a roller coaster ride. I prayed to the Lord to show me what was displeasing about me or about my life to Him. And He answered that prayer in, in a way that's characteristic of our Lord. He was very compassionate, slow to anger, he didn't rub my nose in anything. He didn't publicly shame me or humiliate me. But he unmistakably answered that prayer over the next year, in which he revealed to me the duplicity of my heart, the sort of vanity that had sort of taken over my motivation mm. for making art. And it was a sad time for me, but also a good time, because it made me realize that childlike wonder that had prompted me to make art in the first place had been subverted by professionalism, by careerism, by ego, by all the things that can creep in and colonize our imagination. And that's what had happened to me. My imagination had been colonized by my desire for reputation. Mm. This is a big temptation to artists because we're told from the time we start training as artists that you have to make a name for yourself. And it, I'd forgotten that 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 phrase, to make a name for yourself, actually comes from the story of the Tower of Babel, which directly follows the story of the flood. They, the builders of the tower said, come, let us make a name for ourselves and build a tower reaching unto the heavens, lest we be scattered abroad and, and be forgotten. They were seeking their own immortality by making a name for themselves as great architects or great artists, however you want to put it, building a tower, you know, basically storming the gates of heaven. And what does God do? His response to their arrogance was to make them speak a private language, each of them. But of course, if you have a private language, no one can understand you. And so the, the, the tower came to a halt. Mm. And their big plans for their, their uber civilization suddenly ground to a screeching halt. The story that follows the Tower of Babel is the story of Abram. And as you know, he was given a name, Abraham. He started out as Abram, but because he obeyed God and humbled himself, and basically when God said, go to a place I will show you, and, and, and as the writer of Hebrews says, and he went out not knowing where he was going. <laughs> I love that phrase. He was given a name. So he didn't have to make a name for himself, Abraham. He was given a name by yeah. God. And that's what I think I've discovered since the fire, is that all of my striving to make a name for myself was misguided. It was ruining and subverting the very heart of what I do as an artist. And so, you know, it's been a while now. It's been 20, it'll be 21 years this fall that the house burned down. And in the last two decades, I like to think by God's grace that he's been gradually prying my fingers off of the thing to such an extent that I no longer think about my name. I don't care if I have a reputation. I, this is it's irrelevant. Now, I'm not saying I, there's no egotism or vanity left in me because sadly there is. But you know, if I was asked right now by anybody, why are you doing this? I would have to say I'm doing it because I'm, I'm told to. If God ever said to me, Bruce, you're done. You don't have to do this anymore. Um, what I want you to do is gardening. And he replaced my paintbrush with a, with a rake or a hoe. Honestly, Deb, I would be very happy. Hmm. I no longer worship my art in any way. And I certainly don't want anyone worshiping me. I just want to be faithful. I really just want to please Jesus because it's his gift. He gave it to me. 
I don't want to abuse it anymore. I don't want to use it to draw attention to myself ever again. And yet you, I don't know, I'm just listening to you talk about how you don't want to worship art, and yet you're creating works of art within worship settings where churches are are using your art within their walls. and They are? Aren't they? I mean, where? Where? <laughs> Tell me. I want to know where, they, where this is happening. <laughs> well, I mean, you've had installations, you know, yeah, in your church and in, and in other churches. and the, But the idea of worship and, and sacredness is still connected to your art in a way that we don't really do that anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, the church, by and large, including the traditional churches like the Catholic Church, seldom commission works of art these days. There's some commissioning going on. And uh, some of it's quite interesting, but there's not many. And this has tended for the last hundred years or so, most of the art made for the traditional churches has been pretty cheesy, Mm -hmm. except for the Orthodox tradition, of course, because Mm. they've always had iconographers and they consider iconography to be a holy anointed vocation like priesthood. So, Mm -hmm. but iconography is a different matter than art. It really isn't art. It's something else. So art in the church is really still... A problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I showed surprise when you said churches are using my art because there are um, instances where churches have employed my art, but it was always short-lived. Mm. I haven't received any major commissions from a church ever. Never. O- only commissioned by individuals. Okay. That might change. I mean, God willing, the churches will wake up and, and realize that, you know, visual art alongside of music and poetry can build up the body of Christ. But right now, most churches are pretty ignorant about that, and they, they'd like to pursue other things. So art really gets, like, we get the status of the weird uncle in the attic. You know, you wish he wasn't there, but he's part of your family, so you just sort of put up on him, you know. <laughs> you know, I go to a fairly young church that when we first began, we tried to set up a gallery. You know, we've got an artist collective, and, and actually the woman who leads that is one of your former students. Oh, Holly's done such a great job in helping us think differently through the use of art. Last year during Lent, she and I and a, and a team of, of uh, people, just lay people in our church, we put together a Vesper service through Lent where we walked the Stations of the Cross that Holly and the other artists had created. And then we just did contemplative practices and kind of entered the story together um, mm. with other visual and symbolic means to kind of guide that process for us. And it was just so beautiful to do that throughout Lent. That's wonderful. Oh, it really was. But it, there's a challenge because I think culturally we're wired to not be able to, to do that well or to embrace it well. It's, even with that impulse to want to do it, it's still really hard to execute it. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you're doing that. I, I do know of some instances where really meaningful and very wonderful use of visual art is happening. A a friend of mine who's a painter down in Texas, uh, Phaedra Taylor, has done some really interesting commission work for churches, beautiful, beautiful stuff. And her her husband, David Taylor, he runs the Brem Center Houston, which is an offshoot of the Brem Center at Fuller Seminary out in Pasadena. David, I don't know if you've come across his book, For the Beauty of the Church, a wonderful book, and it's about this very thing, the the need of churches to begin to employ the visual alongside of the musical and the poetic uh, in order to build up the body and to worship God with everything we've got. And I think that is, that is happening. It's just happening slowly. And I'm probably going to be dead before it really is uh, really in full swing. But that's fine. 
<laughs> I, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not doing this for myself anymore. I'm just trying to show up and be faithful to the thing that God puts in front of me. Hmm. You mentioned iconography, and that's mm-hmm. something that I think in the last couple of years I've become really fascinated by. Sometimes I listen to uh, Father Thomas Hopko. He's got a podcast out of Ancient Faith Radio. He's an Orthodox priest, but he counseled that we should never pray to an icon, but we should pray through an icon. And right. the icons serve as a window. And I guess this is where the paradox really holds for me, is that it's not just a window to the transcendent, you know, to the divine things beyond us, to God in this other heavenly place, but the window also opens the kingdom to us now. So it's it holds both transcendence on one side, but also the presence of God with us on this side mm. together. Yeah, I, I'm just kind of curious how you as an artist and as someone who's familiar, I guess, on some level with iconography, how do you understand that? And, and what kind of invitation would that have for us as a church, as a Protestant church? Mm, thanks. Uh, that actually gives me an opportunity to, to respond to this question, but also an earlier question where I never really fully responded, which is, what am I currently working on? Mm. But I, I need to state up front that I don't make icons. And even though I have no problem with non-iconographers making icons, you know, as amateurs, if you will, I don't think what they make is an icon unless they are an ordained iconographer. And I believe that because I, I believe that's what the Orthodox Church teaches, which is that writing icons, which is what, they, that's what iconographers do, they don't, they don't consider themselves artists. Writing icons is like being a scribe, recording Holy Scripture. For them, these images are Holy Scripture. They're not just decorations. And they're certainly not what we would call portraits mm-hmm. of, of saints. So my understanding of iconography is that it's an ordained ministry of, of someone who is called. It's a divine vocation. And so I would never presume to make icons because I'm an artist. I'm not an iconographer. Uh, I like to tell the story about my friend, Ksenia Pokrovsky, who immigrated to the United States. She and her husband, Lev Pokrovsky, taught at the University of Moscow for many years. She was a microbiologist. He was a physicist. This is back in the Soviet era. They began going to these clandestine meetings at the home of uh, a man by the name of Alexander Men, who was an Orthodox priest, but who was not like a lot of the Orthodox hierarchy in bed with the KGB and the government. He was kind of a dissident. And he was what you might call an Orthodox evangelical or evangelical Orthodox priest. So he had these secret meetings at his house for inquirers. And Lev and Ksenia would go to his house uh, and participate in these discussions. And they were atheists, like most Russians at the time, or like lots of Russians. But they were fascinated by Alexander Main's talks. And eventually they both became Christians and became converts to the Orthodox Church. And at one point, Father Main came over to Ksenia, put his hand on her shoulder and said, Ksenia, you are going to become one of the foremost iconographers in the world. And she said, oh, you're deeply mistaken. I'm not an artist. I'm a, I'm a biologist. And Father Man said, oh, darling, Ksenia, this is not about you. <laughs> and and um, 
And then he laid his hands on her and prayed over her, and she in, indeed became one of the foremost iconographers in Russia and now in the United States. So if you look her up, her work is all over the place. But to the day that she died, she still said, I'm a microbiologist, mm. but I've been called to be an iconographer. So my understanding of iconography is that it's a divine vocation. That's not what I do. On the other hand, I'm very interested in the liminal space between the icon and the portrait, and that's what I've been working on for the last six years, mm. a project we're calling Ordinary Saints with a poet, Malcolm Geit, out of Cambridge University in England, and Jack Redford, a composer from the West Coast, whose bread and butter has been, been orchestrating film scores for the last 30 years. He did Titanic, Skyfall, lots and lots of blockbusters, and, and mm. He even wrote some scores for, for films, including a, a great little indie that you might like called Trip to Bountiful. Hmm. It, was, it was Geraldine Page's last film. It was a low-budget indie that's just a marvelous film. Christians really ought to see this film, Trip okay. to Bountiful. But anyway, um, I'm collaborating with these two guys, a poet and a composer. Basically, I've been painting all the people I love who I know love God. My wife, my children, my grandchildren, my friends, my dad, my mom, and calling them ordinary saints. I've used a lot of gold leaf and silver leaf like, like you would typically use in an icon. In fact, the process that I use for making these paintings is very, very like what iconographers use. But the style, the look of the paintings is very different because the faces in the portraits go beyond even the realism of photographs. If you get up close to them, they, there's a very close particularization of the face like you would get in a high-resolution photograph. Because of the paint quality and the textural elements, they feel much more real than a photograph. And that's quite intentional. This is the, the highest level of realism I've ever tried to achieve in my work since I began painting. Partly because I, I wanted these paintings to be like an icon on one level, but, but not an icon. But the backgrounds are abstracted and sometimes covered with gold leaf, uh, fractured, scraped, sanded away. It's another thing for the paint or the, the process or the materials to be full of kind of pregnant emotional weight or psychological or even spiritual weight. It's like the surface of the paintings are carrying the important freight, not the image. Although the image is important to me, and, and especially what's interesting to me now in this Project of Ordinary Saints is how the two interact, is how an image of someone I love painted painstakingly to look exactly like them, but also to feel like them. How that, that image interacts with this very painterly, abstracted, liminal zone that surrounds the figure or the face of the beloved and how those two things in tension create this encounter, which I want my viewer to have, and which I also have as a painter looking at it, you know. Boy, that was a mouthful, I'm sorry, but that's what I'm trying to do right now. I mean, it really does feel like an invitation to something both beyond, but also very present, right? Yeah. My reason for doing this is I'm interested in the space between the icon and the portrait. Hmm. And if someone pushed me to say why, I suppose, well, I don't really know why. It's, I'm following an instinct. It's a homing signal hmm. that I'm following. My friend, Father Spiridon, a local Russian Orthodox priest, came to my studio one day and was looking at these paintings of my little ordinary saints. 
And he said, Bruce, you're, you're in kind of dangerous territory here. You, these are not portraits exactly, and they're certainly not icons. They're uncomfortably and dangerously between the two. And he said, you need, you need the protections of the church. You ought to become Orthodox and become an iconographer. <laughs> and, <laughs> Your retirement you know, job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. But, uh, but no, I said to Father Spiridon, well, maybe it is a little dangerous. I don't know, but I'm just following this gut impulse that I have that I, I believe is from the Holy Spirit. And I hope it is. Um, and this collaboration with Malcolm Geit and Jack Redford has been very fruitful so far. They, Malcolm has written 20 poems in response to these 20 paintings. And Jack Redford is, is orchestrating music. He's writing a score for Ordinary Saints that includes you know, musical settings of some of the poems, which will be sung by a singer. There'll be a 10-piece orchestra with woodwinds and, and strings and piano. Uh, we have a book coming out by the same title, Ordinary Saints. And that's my current project. It's that liminal space, that sort of fraught, slightly dangerous territory of in-between things. It's not portraits, it's not icons. And in many ways, although Malcolm Geit has written most of the poems in the sonnet format, what's called ekphrastic poems, which is the traditional term for a poem written or in response to a work of visual art, a sculpture, a painting, whatever, um, Malcolm's poems are kind of in that same liminal space because he's writing a poem about a painting. And then Jack Redford's music is, you know, setting the poem to music, but also responding to the paintings and trying to come up with a, a musical equivalent of some of the textural elements and the color and the, those fragmented spaces within the paintings, but also the deeply personal paintings of loved ones. Hey. Our hope is that these are so personal that they will be universal. So in other words, anybody can look at these paintings and say, that could be my family. That could be my friends. Yes, they are saints. They are people I need to know and, and I need to look toward with, with a mixture of reverence and love because they're images of God. That is so beautiful. Bruce, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your work, your life, your perspectives. As you've been talking, I just feel this excitement of, you know, what could be and kind of this invitation for us as Christians to engage art, not just as something to consume, but to participate in, something to serve as a window, both to the transcendence, the love of God, but also that communal experience where we can be present together and experience the kingdom of God present now with us. Beautifully said. And thank you, Deb. It's been great talking to you. Well, friends, as this episode comes to a close, I have a very special treat for you. We get to hear a selection from Ordinary Saints. Special thanks to Bruce Herman, Jack Redford, and Malcolm Geit for making this available to us. You can find a link to their work on the Betwixt Podcast website and in the show notes of this episode. I hope you enjoy and go make art. This poem, The Portrait of the Artist, uh, about uh, Bruce's self-portrait, is prefaced by an epigraph from C.S. Lewis's uh, Great Sermon, The Weight of Glory, a text which has been uh, seminal uh, for all that we've done here. So C.S. Lewis writes, Ah, but we want so much more. 
something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and the mythologies know all about. We do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. A portrait of the artist. There is a presence and an absence here. The artist sets himself aside, leaves space for his shy muse, descending from her sphere. She shimmers through his touch and brush, which place these faint suggestions of her presence where she arches just behind him, full of grace. He looks another way, as though aware that turning round to see would frighten her. He cannot see. We cannot help but stare. Where light and shade, informing one another, call forth the forms that haunt his staring eyes, beauties from which not one of us recover. Beauties of gold and green appear and rise behind him like the walls of the Duomo which hold the body and its mysteries. He has summoned them like Prospero. Spirits of air and fire, water, earth, they haunt him now and will not let him go. Until he paints for them the secret path whereby they might grow visible at last until he brings them to their proper birth. And in their presence, we are found and lost. What finds us here is haunting, numinous, and opens out the secret of our past. That longing, inconsolable within us, for beauty, yes, and yet for something more. Not just to see the lovely, luminous appearances of nature, but to pour ourselves into and through them, to receive them into us, till beauty, grace, and power become the very world in which we live, the air we breathe, the light by which we see. And we are 
become one with all the things we love. And what we lose is our complacency, the daily comfort of the commonplace, our cherished substitutes for grace and glory. somehow trace a portrait of the artist who has made us and waits for us to turn and see his face. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcasts, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time.